This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very happy to say we have Carolina Armenteros on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, The French Idea of History, Joseph Demetra and His Heirs, 1794 to 1854. When I was in college, I took a class called The Enlightenment, where we read all of the Enlightenment thinkers. I loved that class. It was completely formative for me as a historian, and I think probably as a person. One of the people we ran into in that class was Josef de Maistre, and I really hadn't heard his name for many, many, many years, but I was happy to hear it in the title of Carolina's excellent book. So it was a particular treat to me today to talk to an expert on de Maistre. He He has a kind of a bad reputation given to him by people like Carl Schmidt as a sort of proto-fascist. As Carolina points out in the interview, that's false. And she does a, a really terrific job of explaining what he thought and adding a certain amount of subtlety to our interpretation of this seminal thinker, kind of a French Edmund Burke, although, as we also point out, he wasn't French. In any event, I really enjoyed talking with Carolina today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Carolina. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, today we're talking with Carolina Armenteros about her new book, The French Idea of History, Joseph de Maistre and His Heirs, 1794 to 1854. As I was telling Carolina in the pre-interview, I'm a big, big fan of intellectual history, and so when one of Carolina's uh, fans, she has fans herself, uh, suggested that I do this book. I jumped at the opportunity. It only took me two months to get to it because I moved, uh, which is, of course, my fault and not uh, Carolina's. But I'm very happy to have read it. And if you, too, are uh, a fan of the history of thought, of um, intellectual history, of uh, the history of concepts, of what the Germans call Begriffsgeschichte, I think this is a book that you'll like very, very much. I took a class in... Um, college called the enlightenment it was just called the enlightenment and we read all of these texts and i have to say it was formative for me i i, I think it was probably the best college class i ever took and i i would like to say that my intellectual life is simply an extension of it <laughs> so every chance i get to read uh, an enlightenment or a counter enlightenment thinker i i certainly do so again i encourage you to go out and pick up carolina's book if you uh have a moment. Carolina, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I'm a historian of ideas in 
I, I focus mostly on 18th and 19th century Europe, although I've worked all the way up to World War One. <laughs> and um, I, I focus also especially in France. Um, I was, I did my undergraduate work at Stanford University, and I did my graduate work at the University of Cambridge. I was trained in the Cambridge School of Political Thought and Intellectual History. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a specific methodology that comes with my work. And now I work at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Oh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was a Franklin Fellow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's Rosalind Franklin. We, we, we corresponded about, she's one of my heroes. Yes. <laughs> there's a fellowship program there that's only for women. Uh -huh. And that is named after her. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. That's what I that's what I have right now is mm -hmm. that we're fellowship. Mm -hmm. that, that's terrific. Now you mentioned the, the the Cambridge School of History of Ideas. Is that Quentin Skinner and and fellows? Yes, that's right. That's right. And uh, Quentin Skinner, for those of you who don't know, is a great intellectual historian. I think I read everything Quentin Skinner ever wrote. Of course, I read it uh, so long ago that I've forgotten all of it. But I I remember that uh, um, it's highly recommended. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, I always thought of Quentin Skinner as sort of uh, Isaiah Berlin, but serious. I'm sure I'm going to get email about that, because um, Isaiah Berlin, I guess, was a very serious guy, too. So tell us how you came to write the French idea of history. Well, um, I had uh, actually a very torturous um, academic career. I don't, I, think, I don't think you're alone there, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I did, I did for two bachelor's degrees, one in biology and one in modern history. Um, my degree in modern history was on the Middle East, so I was going to study the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Mm -hmm. But then I decided that I wanted to do instead an MPhil in ancient history, so I went to Cambridge for that. And then um, I realized that I'd come too late to the languages, to the classical languages, um, to do an MPhil. To, to pursue that as a PhD. So instead, um, I decided to do intellectual history. I mean, it was very big at Cambridge um, at the time. It still is very big there. Um, and that I wanted to focus on Europe. I had published by that time um, an article on Hannah Arendt and, and her political philosophy. And um, so I decided to, yeah, to, to do... Um, French and German intellectual history in the beginning. Um, but then, you know, I thought that for practical reasons, I, I was able to read French much more quickly than German, so I decided to <laughs> France. Then I was going to write a PhD on the, on the relationship between religion and science during the Third Republic. Because of my science background, I thought I you know, wanted to incorporate that into my work. Um, and then, um, in the course of my reading, I became very interested in... Um, historians of France who thought of the French Revolution as satanic at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, my supervisor, um, Gareth Stedman Jones, encouraged me to write a background piece um, explaining, um, you know, where the idea of the revolution as satanic had come from. And Joseph de Mestre had been the first um, at the beginning of the century, or rather at the end of the late of the 18th century, to call the French Revolution satanic. So I had to go read him. Um, he was just going to be a reference for um, for this background piece. And um, I checked out his uh, considerations on France at the library. And I started reading them. And within five minutes, I knew that my 
PhD would have to be on him and more specifically on his idea of history. And that's exactly what I wrote my PhD on. Mm-hmm. And the book that I have uh, written as an extended, a substantially extended and revised uh, version of, of my PhD dissertation. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was just, uh, I mean, until then I had actually been uh, quite lost in regard to my PhD subject. I, I wasn't, I, had, I was having trouble focusing it, which is, you know, what most students do when when they choose a PhD subject. But I think the first months are the most difficult when you're really trying to um, to define an original contribution to knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as I discovered uh, Mest, um, I just knew I had to work on this man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I found that you know there was a very interesting idea of history that apparently had not been studied before. Um, that that was potentially quite fruitful. So that's how I came to Mest. That's a that's a great story. It it actually you uh, I don't think you'd be surprised to learn that uh, there are a lot of historians that follow a kind of winding road like that. I studied biology as an undergraduate too, (laughs) and I didn't major in it, but I I did a lot of it. And uh, yeah, I often think what would have happened if I would have become a biologist. Um, But in any event, yeah, that that's it's a terrific story, and I think it's a good indication of. You know, sometimes it takes a while to find the thing that grabs us. Uh, it took me a long time, and um, I know even for my second project, it took me a while to figure out exactly what it was that I wanted to do. Because you invest a lot of time in these things, and you certainly don't want to um, uh, you don't want to give over vast uh, stretches of your life to something that um, isn't interesting to you. That's at least that's my that's my feeling about it. So, yeah, exactly. So, uh, tell tell us exactly who. Um, or in general terms, who Joseph de Mestre was? Um, he was, to put it in the simplest terms, the francophone counterpart of Edmund Burke. That's how he's usually introduced. Yeah, he gets um, that a lot. <laughs> he gets that a lot. Um, even though there are huge, I mean, I wouldn't, I, he definitely admired Burke, and I think Burke would have admired him. I'm not sure um, that the comparison is very apt because even though they both come to very similar conclusions in the sense that they're both counter-revolutionaries and founders of conservatism, they also um, have very different ways of arriving at those conclusions. Um, Basically, Mestre incorporates religion into his analysis of society um, and politics much more than Burke does. Mestre is a theocrat. Whereas Burke is much more discreet about about his religion, you know, to, simply. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I would um, describe him. He was um, he's usually uh, thought of as French. He was actually not French. He was made French by Napoleon against his will. Um, Napoleon, who wasn't French either. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, the thing is. Um, Mess first became famous uh, through a pamphlet called uh, Considerations on France, where he de- denounced the revolution as a punishment of God, um, basically, um, and where he said that he would never, that he had never been French and he would never be French. And Napoleon read this pamphlet and he was a great admirer of it. And I think that in a stroke of irony, he decided that he was going to make Mess French, <laughs> whether he wanted to or not. Exactly, and and Mez was very very grieved by this, and he, he wrote letters protesting about this. But unfortunately, there wasn't anything he could do. Um, he was in Russia at the time, and he had to um, have his son to uh, 
to Russia. His son was in Italy at the time. Mm-hmm. He had to have his son uh, come from Italy to live with him because he didn't want him to fight on Napoleon's side in the Napoleonic Wars now that he was French. So, um, yes, he's, he's a very interested, interesting character. I mean, aside from a founder of conservatism um, and ultramontanism, he's the first one to articulate um, the ultramontanist position from a political point of view. He's also an, a great stylist. He was a true master of the French language, which is what makes him so interesting to read and so pleasant to read. Um, he's had a far greater uh, posterity than Louis de Bonald, the other major conservative thinker. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's because of his, um, his writing style. He's just um, very original, very lively, um, and he writes very beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, it was impossible for him to commit a manuscript anonymously to the press. He tried several times, but he always ended up signing his name because he was instantly recognized mm-hmm. because of his unique style. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. yes, there's that. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, he, uh, the book is called The French Idea of History. He wasn't a historian, though. He didn't write history, uh, right? No, he wasn't a historian, but he was somewhat <laughs> deeply about history. So he was a philosopher of history, but not a historian. Mm-hmm. Um, he was someone who used history to make political points. Um, and to ma- and to theorize society, and in the process, he came up with a very sophisticated idea of history. That's what the book argues, um, and it also argues that his most avid uh, disciples um, in in historical matters were actually on the left. They were not conservatives like him. They were mostly uh, socialists um, as well as positivists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we have the stereotype of him, and I think we have uh, again to harken back to Isaiah Berlin. He's uh, responsible for some of this. Um, it's easy to argue with people who are dead. They never argue back. Um, and, and that is sort of uh, cornering these thinkers as reactionaries and uh, as something um, we might call the counter-enlightenment, I think is a phrase that uh, Isaiah Berlin coined. But you argue against this for a not only more subtle, I would say, interpretation of of De Maestro, but, but really a, a quite a, a different one um, that, that he 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 wasn't a reactionary in the sense that Berlin meant, and that his thought was um, much more sophisticated than uh, simply being the, the the French who actually wasn't French, um, Burke. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I tried to bring out in the book is that if you think of um, reactionism as a desire to reproduce the past. Then Mestre was by no means um, a reactionary, and that to some degree his conservatism can be thought of as a form of historicism, in the sense that um, he basically, um, and this, this, and this is where his Christianity, his, his deep conviction um, to religion, uh, his deep commitment to religion comes in, because he was someone who thought of, as, um, of, of politics um, as governed ultimately by God. So he was a providentialist. So in that, from that point of view, whatever God ordains um, is good in some way. Even the revolution is good. Even the revolution has its uses. I mean, he was someone who opposed the revolution very much um, as, as the consummation of human iniquity, uh, which is why he called it satanic. Um, but 
he was convinced that the revolution had been ordained by God for a reason and that something good had to come out of it. And that meant that after the revolution, nothing would be the same as before the revolution. So there was no point trying to go back to the society of the old regime. Mm-hmm. And there were also things about the society of the old regime that he didn't like. Uh, for instance, um, in France, in the case of France, it's Gallicanism. So the subjection of the of the church to the state, that was something he didn't like. Um, that's why he formulated this ultramontanist view of the Pope as, you know, the central figure of the Catholic Church, um, who should govern over uh, church affairs. And he also argued for the independence of the spiritual power from the temporal power. So um, he wanted to change the relationship between state and church. He was also happy to change the relationship uh, between the classes to some extent. Um, he was not by any means, you know, committed like Chateaubriand to uh, return, you know, to this kind of agrarian-based society. You know, he, he recognized that things were changing. Um, and he was fine with that because, you know, God seemed to want them to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and at the same time, he's also, uh, especially towards the end of his life, I mean, the book also argues that there's a shift in his thought uh, towards an increasingly revolutionary view of politics. If by a revolutionary view of politics you mean a view of politics uh, where humans take the initiative in political affairs as opposed to um, you know, as the counter-revolution would have liked just allowing God to speak, right? From a counter-revolutionary point of view, um, the way to fight the revolution is actually to do nothing, to just wait until it exhausts itself um, and to wait for providence to speak. And that's the view that Nest advocates at the beginning of his career. Uh, but he also realizes that by the very act of, of writing pamphlets, of opposing the revolution politically, he's also taking matters to his own hands. And by the end of his life, he's very much arguing for a position where human beings, you know, um, produce politics or take politics into their own hands. And it's a much more revolutionary <coughs> than he has um, at the beginning of, of his career. So that's, that's what the book argues as well. Mm-hmm. So this, this vision of um, Mest as a reactionary that uh, Berlin puts forward, so as someone who simply systematically opposes the Enlightenment in every, in every possible way, um, is very misleading because um, Mest is also incorporating aspects of revolution and also of Enlightenment thought. The book is about um, also putting his historical thought in the context of the Enlightenment and showing how many ideas Mest borrowed from the Enlightenment in the process of his political points. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do a nice job of that. He he read very, very widely, and he read widely among the <laughs> among the liberal Enlightenment thinkers as well as some of the more conservative ones. I, I think one way to get at uh, his idea of history and what it is is to contrast it with what uh, I was going to say we believe, but uh, many people believe about the historical process. And by that comparison, I think we can come to see how really kind of strange his, and I don't mean strange in an evaluative sense, how how different his way of thinking about history is from the way that many people think about history today. So if I could just characterize uh, what most people, I, I guess, maybe in the academy and outside think about, uh, history uh, is a is a r- kind of a random process. Um, it might be guided by uh, by evolutionary principles, either on the geological or biological scale. Um, uh, insofar as God enters into it, uh, we don't see his or her or its hand anywhere 
and um, and the, the uh, history of institutions is largely governed by human choice. Humans choose to do things, they intervene, they take actions, things change, and historians write the history of that. So, uh, you know, um, uh, Hitler coming to power and uh, starting World War II has nothing to do with God, and it has everything to do with Hitler and the Germans, uh, just to take that as an example. Uh, there's no meaning in it uh, other than uh, the, its impact on people's lives and largely individual people's lives. In some cases they died, in some cases not. Uh, but it's devoid of any uh, meaning beyond that. Uh, it doesn't. It isn't written on the stars or in any sacred book. It wasn't foretold. Uh, it was co absolutely contingent. Um, it might have happened. It might not have happened. Um, we live in a kind of a probabilistic universe in which events transpire. And you know, again, it's sort of a roll of the dice at any particular moment. And this is what gives history its kind of unpredictable uh, essence. We can't really tell what's going to happen, no matter what economists tell us. Um, and, and, and so we live in this sort of random universe. And that's the human condition and the historical condition. Uh, that was just very quick and dirty. Um, did did Demester believe any of that? Um, well, towards the end of his life, he comes increasingly to believe in human intervention um, in history, you know, that humans can make their own history. And he develops that very Pelagian um, view of, of this kind of intervention. So he, that's another thing that the book argues, that, is that it has, um, for what, what for the times was a very radical uh, view of, of human freedom, you know, in humans' capacity to alter their own destiny. Um, so he was uh, very much of a libertarian um, in that sense. So from that point of view, his uh, his views converge with you know the, the view of history that you have just described. Um, insofar as he sees history as having its ultimate telos in God, um, he he sounds of course very strange to us today, but he's very much in line with the traditional philosophy of history of his time. Um, you know, because the philosophy of history at the beginning um, is is a Christian enterprise. You know, that's with Joachim of Fiore um, in the Middle Ages, um, and even by the time that you get to Marx, I mean, there have been lots of scholars that have ar argued that Marx's version of history is just a secularized uh, version of Christian philosophies of history. Insofar as it's still salvific, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's still esoteric. We're, we're all going to be saved in some way. I mean, by communism rather than God, but we are going to be saved in the end. Um, so, so Mestre is very much, uh, I mean, he, he looks strange to us, but he's, he's very much um, a part of, of this tradition, uh, which, of course, he develops in his own unique way. Um, but he's very aware of, of this increasing role that the humans have to play in history. Um, and the, the book tries to, bring that, tries to bring that out, you know, he tries to... Um, highlight him as a, as a Pelagian. But did he put it in the broader perspective? You mentioned uh, Christian um, theology and the Christian interpretation of history. He put all of this in the broader framework of um, the second coming, that, that Christ would come back to earth and, and that would pretty much be that and some things would happen that are foretold in the Bible and that's inevitable and we all know that. Yes, he wasn't so much uh, focused on what the Bible says. I mean, he obviously assumed that you know the 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 prophecy of the apocalypse would come to pass. Um, but he was very interested in this idea of the third revelation. Um, he, he was interested in, in two ideas. One of the primitive revelation, was it was, which was an idea that was put forward by the German thinker Friedrich Schlegel. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then he was also very interested in the third revelation, which was um, the idea of Herder. So um, a lot of thinkers, I mean, beginning in Germany, but increasingly also in France at the time, believed um, that, uh, you know, two revelations had been imparted. Uh, one, a primitive revelation, then the revelation associated with the Bible. The primitive revelation had been lost through sin, you know, because it was a, such a complete form of knowledge that humans could not stand it, and they, they fell through crimes that was beyond our capacity to imagine. And uh, Then, you know, this revelation was partially restored with the revelation of the Bible. And then at the end of time, a third revelation uh, would come to pass, um, uh, you know, and then a, a final age on earth would be inaugurated, Mestre, like most of his contemporaries, I mean, well, perhaps not most, but many of his contemporaries, um, also in Russia, because he developed these ideas in Russia, believed that the um, uh, Third Revolution was imminent. You know, because a lot of people had experienced the French Revolution as just the abyss of human history. They thought it cannot get worse than this. Humanity cannot deprave itself further than this. Um, so we have to, you know, God has to save us. You know, he has to do something radical. And that radical thing is going to be this third revelation that will inaugurate the third and final age of history uh, when an imminent, when, when an, you know, a reign of God on earth will be instituted. And we have to help, we have to prepare that age um, by, by becoming erudite. Mm -hmm. That's the, the vision that, that Mestre legates uh, to French thought in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, that ultimately, of course, God is going to decide when and how he imparts the third revelation. But we can um, we can prepare uh, that time by orienting our minds toward him by, by gathering all this this erudition about the first the primitive revelation you know so actually um, spiritual progress for Mest um, and also for his followers in the nineteenth century is about uh, is about erudition and becoming aware of different cultures and of, you know the the myths um, embedded in different cultures and the, the belief systems. Um, that that you know different peoples have, and that are all um, that that are all that all contain fragments of the primitive revelation, and that will help us to orient ourselves towards the third. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, how <clears throat> one of the things that also is in his thought that I think is foreign to us uh, is is um, is precisely this notion of um, not a separation between church and state, but in fact the dominance of the church and. Uh, particularly the Pope. Uh, and when he thinks of Christianity, he thinks not of um, Protestantism in its myriad forms or Judaism or anything like that. It's Catholicism. Mm -hmm. that, that is the revealed form of Christianity, and it is the only valid one. Is that correct? Um, it's the only one that has the full truth. Um, mm -hmm. other, other religions, because he's very much of a syncretist in the sense that he thinks that all world religions contain some kind of spiritual truth. But only uh, the complete spiritual truth, as far as it is available to humans at this point in time, is contained in Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Only Catholicism has possesses the full truth as, as far as we are able to know it. And he hints um, in the St. Petersburg Dialogues, one of his, la his last unfinished work, that um, perhaps when the third revelation comes, Catholicism will actually be um, eliminated. You know, it will be superseded by an even more perfect faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he he does believe that that um, you know spiritual truth is contained in all um, spiritual traditions to some degree, including Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but of course, only Catholicism is contains the full truth. That's his position. 
And, and what role did he see for the Pope then? He, did he, uh, the, the impression I got, uh, and I remember, is, is that he basically wanted the Pope to be the ruler of Europe and in the world. Well, um, not really in the sense that he does believe that most temporal matters should be administrated by temporal sovereigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I argue in the book is that on the, if you compare him with the medieval point of view on these things, uh, which mo- most people say, well, he's just a, you know, he just has a medieval point of view on the relationship between church and state. I think that's not really true, um, because on the one hand, he enlarges vastly the power of the Pope, and on the other hand, he restricts it vastly. Mm-hmm. What he's most interested in the Pope doing is in resolving political crises. Again, he's someone who's completely obsessed with the revolution. I mean, he, his entire political thought springs out of the revolution. If it hadn't been for the revolution, he probably would never have written a single line of political thought. I mean, that's it's the revolution that really begins his his writing career. Um, he believed that some means had to be found to resolve political crises like the revolution peacefully and bloodlessly. Mm-hmm. That was his main preoccupation. Um, and he uh, was also inspired by a lot of um, you know treatises of the 18th century who, who thought that some kind of European legal order, international legal order, had to be instituted, you know, for the states of Europe to cooperate with each other and to minimize the risk for war. And um, in Dupapin on the Pope, his, um, his, his, one of his last books of 1819, argues that it's actually the Pope who should provide this you know, international legal authority to resolve political crises. So uh, basically, when a people feels too oppressed by its sovereign, um, it should write to the Pope to intervene. And he says, he argues that the Pope is a perfect sovereign to intervene in political crises because he's a foreigner, um, he's respected, <laughs> yeah, so he's neutral, right? Mm-hmm. He says, you know, if a, if a people deposes its own sovereign, it does too much damage to sovereignty, and then you get a mess like the mess that you have in France. Um, so you, you have to be able to remove a sovereign without damaging sovereignty. And that's why you need some kind of external neutral power doing it. Mm-hmm. That's his argument. Mm-hmm. The, the, he restricts the power of the Pope insofar as the Pope should have political power only um, in times of crisis and only at the request of a people. Mm-hmm. Because unlike what um, most people maintain, uh, Mestre is not someone that thinks that you, know, you should just endure bad treatment from your king or from your sovereign or from your government endlessly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't believe that. Um, and what, I mean, not only does the revolution convince him of this, but also um, the case of Gustav IV, the king of Sweden, who was deposed for madness in 1804, um, also convinces him that, you know, sometimes you just have to get rid of your king because he's not able to, to, to rule. The case of Gustav, you know, is a case in point because he involves Sweden and these massive wars that basically crush the country. Mm-hmm. So he thinks, you know, sometimes you have to um, get rid of your king, um, but you have to do it in a way that doesn't cause, um, you know, the suffering and death of, of tens of thousands of people and that doesn't start, you know, uh, wars that kill millions of people, as happened during the Napoleonic Wars. That's what, he's, that's what horrifies him about the French Revolution. When the French Revolution initially comes, he welcomes it. He thinks, oh, finally, some reform. When, when he starts turning against it is when it gets violent and when people start dying. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when he decides, I'm not going to compromise with this movement. This is not acceptable. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but until it gets violent, he's someone who's actually, um, he actually writes to his sister that um, at the beginning of the revolution that he thinks that his king's ambassador is tasteless for not having celebrated the 14th of July. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's actually quite enthusiastic about the revolution at the beginning of it. But um, when it gets violent, I mean, he himself loses all his property because when the French Revolutionary Army invades Savoy, Savoy at the time was not part of France. Um, he, he basically decides he's the only, he was a senator of Savoy, and he's the only member of the Senate of Savoy who decides that um, he has to leave. Um, he, he cannot live under a revolutionary government. And so leaving also, in, well, also implies leaving all his property to be confiscated by the government. So he, he lives the remainder of his life in exile. He dies in exile. Mm-hmm. And he loses all his property. And, and he loses touch with the majority of his family and his friends. So the revolution is also a very violent event for him personally. I mean, not, no member of his family dies. He doesn't die, but he does lose everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't think that political change should come at that kind of price. Mm-hmm. So all of his views on the relationship between church and state are oriented towards trying to find some kind of peaceful way of resolving political crises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that reminds me a little bit of something that used to be said of Catherine the Great, that she loved the French Revolution until, the, until they killed the king. So it was just great. She loved it. Um, <clears throat> Now, one of the things you say in the book, which I think is quite correct, and and I think even many conservatives today would do well to probably hear you talk a little bit about it, is that um, you you say conservative thought is historical thought. Um, And uh, I think this is right. Uh, Could you you talk a little bit about what that means? Yes, it means that in the early conservative, um, from the early conservative point of view, you derive uh, what should be from what has been. So possibility um, is outlined by, by, the, by fact, by mm-hmm. the, and, and that means turning to the past. So you don't come up with a, with a completely new way of thinking um, that has no basis in reality, because that leads to things like the revolution. Right? You can't think completely de novo. You can't think completely a priori. You have to look in the past at what has been done before and start with that. Um, and that's very, much, that's very much Mest's position. And in his case, that mentality is pounded again by his providentialism. So he believes that whatever has lasted through time, so whatever has been successful across the ages, I sort of has this providence stamp of approval. If, if God has allowed something to last for a long time, it means that it must be good in some way. This is what he finds so traumatizing at the end of his life, is that he realizes that the revolutionary spirit has triumphed. And he just does not understand how God could have allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how he could have allowed um, you know, these principles, despite all the damage they have done and despite all the violence they have caused, to be successful. Um, because from, from the conservative point of view, you measure what can be on the basis of what has been or what is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why the conservative mentality is the inherent historicist one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I find this very, very interesting. I think it was Burke or somebody commenting on Burke who described institutions as congealed wisdom or something like that, and and th- that they're really sort of inexplicable. 
that we have to be very humble before any historical attempt to explain how an institution develops because it's simply too complicated for us to understand. All we can say is that it sort of works. There's a kind of magic to it, and we can't go further than that. But the thing I wanted you to talk a little bit more about is uh, the, the sort of inherent empiricism in this view. I mean, and here we have somebody who is a providentialist, who believes things are going on that we cannot see. They are, they are revealed by God. They're happening in another sphere, and this is, is controlling everything. Um, but on the other end, he says that all we really need to pay attention to is what has happened. Could you talk a little bit about his empiricism? Yes. Um, that's another thing that the book brings out that I think makes an original contribution because for until now, Mestre has um, been thought of as an elitist in epistemological matters. And he says himself that we all have ideas implanted in us by God. So we're all born with, with these kind of, um, you know, ideas about the world. So he's very much against Locke's position of the tabula rasa. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, he also um, thinks that, you know, we're, we're put in the world to learn um, about it through experience. And this is where history comes in, as, as you say. You know, historicism and empiricism necessarily go together. And um, he thinks that um, our innate ideas can be awakened by, um, by our experience. So, our, you know, the universals that we have implanted uh, within us, to put it in scholastic terms, can, you know, can be developed through our interaction with particulars or with experience. Mm -hmm. um, and he also thinks that you know, God puts us in the world to learn. Um, and that if we, if we learn to read um, God's lessons in the world, in nature, in history, um, then we can also get closer to God. But we can't do that without acquiring experience, so without being empiricist. So for him, knowledge is a combination of the ideas that we already have in our mind and of our interaction with the world, mm -hmm. our experience. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that all strikes me as quite modern. I mean, that, that is more or less what we believe, too, is that we have ideas in our mind, or, you know, to put it in Kantian terms, there are filters through which we see and understand things, and there is what we see and understand through those filters. And that's what we have, and that's what we have to go on. Yes, and it's a continuing debate also within psychology. Obviously, you know, in psychology, you also have, you know, we, ha we have our innateists and we have our behaviorists to this day. Are there still behaviorists? Um, well, I've I I not met any recently. I'm not asked, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that, uh, that the legacy of Skinner, not Quentin Skinner, and this other Skinner is, is still alive. I mean, um, there's, I, I, I don't, I'm not a psychologist, but right. this is what I learned in college is that there's these two views and mm -hmm. yeah, there's evidence for both and, yeah. you know, yeah. and then also the, empir the empiricism is very much an enlightenment notion. I mean, if you, if you re try to reduce the enlightenment to boil it down into the most basic principles that you can think of, um, it, it is it boils down to the idea that, you know, God is becoming increasingly distant from human affairs. So, you know, humans are more and more in charge of their destiny, which is an idea that Mestre shares through his Pelagianism. Right. Um, and then also to, to this um, empiricism, you know, to the idea that we acquire knowledge through, uh, through the senses, um, which Mestre also shares. So that, that's another argument for making, for, for putting him more squarely 
um, in the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Instead, instead of arguing that he's just this kind of mindless reactionary who's, who's trying um, to go back to earlier times, he's not trying to go back to earlier times. And he's a very creative and in many ways a very revolutionary thinker who's very much incorporating um, you know, Enlightenment and revolutionist um, mm-hmm. strands of his thought. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the way he was received uh, both during his life and after his life. Burke becomes famous and then becomes read in basically every college course you can possibly take. I think with along with the Communist Manifesto, which used to be read in every college course you could take, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, everybody reads it. Um, uh, what happens to Demestre after, um, both late in his life and then um, and then after he's gone, is he, is he, uh, uh, is he, is he become canonical in some way? Does he enter the, the curriculum of every institution of higher education? Um, not as much as Burke does. Um, he's definitely very widely read uh, from the time of the publication of the Considerations on France. He's, um, in 1814, when the king returns, he's hailed as a prophet because in the Considerations he predicts that the king will return. Um, and he uses um, evidence, and he uses what has happened during, what happened during the English Revolution to predict how, you know, the monarchy will be restored. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's widely respected and read in his time, and he's also from the beginning widely feared and defamed. And I think it's because, uh, precisely of this very lively style that he has, he writes, he can write very violently, uh, which makes him uh, vulnerable to, caric- to being caricatured. Mm-hmm. Um, and to being simplified, it's very it's very easy to take, um, you know, ideas, um, you know, passages out of context, and, and say, well, you know, this this person is just completely crazy. Um, and his enemies begin doing that already in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, he's he's very widely read. His works go through numerous numerous editions throughout the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. He continues to be very widely read. Um, but he's more pigeonholed than Burke. And uh, part of it is because of uh, his religious convictions. And part of it is also because of, um, you know, he's, he's a great stylist, but also he, he can put things in very shocking ways. Um, so the most, uh, for instance, perhaps the most famous passage that he's ever written is a, is a passage from the St. Petersburg Dialogues that explains um, the role of the executioner who explains that the execution is a sort of sacred figure. Um, so that's been read as a glorification of violence, whereas um, I don't think it's at all a glorification of violence. On the other hand, uh, it's quite the country. It's, um, it's a passage that really evinces him. His, his obsession, he's obsessed with violence because he fears violence deeply. Mm-hmm. And, and he hates it. He hates it so much. I mean, his entire thought is, uh, it revolves around trying to prevent the violence of the revolution. Mm-hmm. But he writes passages like that uh, that people have interpreted to suggest the contrary and to argue that he's just, you know, this kind of crazy bloodthirsty. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he's not. It's, it's exactly the opposite. He's obsessed with violence because he finds it so horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, reading your book he, and also talking to you, he, he gets pigeonholed. He gets, uh, he gets hijacked, I think, by... By certain people, I think the same thing happened to Nietzsche. He got hijacked too, and yes. uh, although I'm not sure Nietzsche was as subtle as uh, Demestre was, um, at least on my reading of Nietzsche, which I won't say is expert, but he gets hijacked by fascists, and um, and he can never really come clean. 
you know, once 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 uh, the right people start to talk about what he said in a certain way, then he's forever associated with them. Yes, exactly. This happens to both Nietzsche and to Maestre. Um And, I mean, I've written other works. Um, I mean, not, I haven't written them all myself, but I've co-edited collections of essays where I argue, I mean, there, he's only got one real fascist reader, and that's Carl Schmidt. That's a good one to have. <laughs> yes. Um, that's the only real fascist, that's the only proper fascist reader that he ever has. Um, uh, Charles Maurras, the founder of the Action Française, uh-huh. um, also reads him and likes him very much. Charles Maurras is associated with fascism, but he's not himself a fascist. Right. Charles Maurras is a monarchist. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, of the, of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interpreters that Mest has across the centuries, he's got one fascist reader. Mm-hmm. But, of course, because that's the most sensationalist one, that's the one that has stuck in the imagination. And people have gone back and said, well, if you know, people like Schmidt are reading Mest, when Mest must be a precursor of fascism. Well, you know, he has a lot more readers who are actually socialists in the 19th century. Yeah, and I found that really interesting. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, but most in the in the early part of the 19th century, um, the vast majority of the people who engage with his um, historical thought are um, are thinkers in the Saint Simonian tradition. So the heirs of Saint Simon, you know, the founder of industrial socialism, and um, they like Mestre precisely because of his idea of history, because of this salvific um, model of how history is going to proceed uh, toward a higher order, mm-hmm. and. Um, and that's what they, and um, I mean, they, mo- they secularize it sometimes. Um, but I mean, that for them also, the idea of God is very present at the end of the day. Um, and you have uh, the Saint-Simonian, I mean, Saint-Simon himself, I argue, takes uh, from um, Mess's book on the Pope, the Saint-Simonians are also very inspired by it. Um, uh, Boucher also likes um, Mest's work on history very much. So they all, um, they all take this model of history. Of course, for them, the final age means, you know, an age of equality. It means an age of, of, of worker solidarity. It's an age that's much better defined than Mest's final age because they're a less providentialist than Mest, so they, they leave the details of the final times less to providence than Mest does. Mm-hmm. So they're... Um, you know, they, they define the final age in, in greater detail than Mest. Um, uh, Auguste Comte, the founder of positivism, who was also a disciple of Saint-Simon, uh, reads Mest, um, you know, be, when, when he's writing up the law of the three stages, which is the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the main idea behind his, his work, which is also a philosophy of history. So he's also taking historical inspiration from Mest, uh, you know, to devise a philosophy of history of positivism. Um, so these are the people who are really um, engaged with his historical thought. The conservatives, I mean, they also engage, obviously, but they engage less. Um, and I think that also has to do with their providentialism. They, they think, well, God is going to take care of things, so we don't have to speculate so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which reminds me of, uh, you know, there were uh, there were lots of Christian socialists. It wasn't, it wasn't a rare thing to be in the in the sort of early 20th century, not at all. I can think of a few. And uh, actually, I know some today. I know some Christian socialists today. So these things are not particularly contradictory. I mean, we tend to think of them that way, especially in the United States, where um, Protestantism of a certain sort tends to come to define uh, religious attitudes. 
uh, and particularly conservative Protestantism. But nonetheless, I mean, for many Catholic thinkers and also Orthodox thinkers, socialism was not a particularly bad thing at all. Um, and this notion that there would be progress was consistent with scripture as they understood it. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, there are different ways to get to the end days and to heaven on earth or just heaven, but uh, as long as you get there, I think that's what they thought. As long as you get there, you're fine. Um, I think of like Berdyaev is a, is a, is a I think, a, I think a good example of that, um, who also got hijacked by different uh, people. Let me ask you this. Uh, your, your book is, uh, is a truly revisionist book. I mean, you uh, uh, tell a lot of, you say, um, very politely, I should say, that a lot of people who've written about Demester are wrong. <laughs> Just wrong. <laughs> um, uh, how's the book been received? Have, have your colleagues uh, stood up in open forums and, and shouted at you or anything, or have they been kind of polite about it? Um, so far, I think the, the perception has been uh, sympathetic to, to the points that I'm making. Um, I mean, it's, it's a bit early to say because the book was published in, in July of last mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. So I, there still have been no, no uh, printed reviews of it. So all I have uh, so far are um, you know, comments from colleagues. Um, there are those who say that um, I, the one criticism that I've received is that if Mesk is not an enemy of the Enlightenment, then nobody is an enemy. <laughs> um, but I don't think we're arguing that he's not. Um, right. he's those, those people need to read some Russians from the 19th century, and then they'll find some real enemies of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Because they were there. They just need to broaden their horizons a little bit and get out of France. <laughs> yeah, Mesk knew some of those, those people who were Russians. His, his thought is formed in Russia. I met yeah, that. Yeah. He knows a lot of the Russian conservatives, and they're very hardcore. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are. Uh, yeah, that's quite true. Well, I, I you know, I, um, I think, you know, it's, it's always fun to get the reviews when they come. I, I'm a little bit uh, saddened by the fact that uh, our standard is now to uh, produce reviews of books years after they were produced. I'm sorry you have to wait that long. If I were king of the world, that wouldn't happen. But... <laughs> Um, it, it is it is it is our custom, uh, not exactly rapid scholarly communications here in in the in the twenty first century. Uh, I think we can do better, but I don't think we will. Um, but in any event, I, I think that that uh, you know a book a book like this should spark debate, and I hope that it happens uh, sooner rather than later, so that the people interested in the the book can follow it. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I, I really appreciate appreciate it. Um, let, let me close uh, the interview with our a traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you, what are you working on now? Well, I'm beginning a new project on the history of uh, monarchism in the long 19th century, so going from the late 18th century uh, to World War One, because there's there's nothing on it, and um, I think there's nothing on it because um, we tend to assume that even though the majority of European states in the 19th century were monarchies, that you know, somehow after the French Revolution, monarchy dies as a political ideal, so it's a rise as a political practice, um, but it's no longer intellectually compelling for people. And um, I don't think that's true. I think that... Um, well, I, I have a friend who's a monarchist. I'm totally I, serious. <laughs> I yeah, I, you know, he's like, Russia would be better under a monarchy. It's true. <laughs> he's, he's a Russian. He's a, well, he's an American of Russian extraction who studies Russia. Yeah, and okay. I mean, there are a lot of these people around. I mean, there you know there are people that can tell you who all the all the current candidates for the Romanov throne are. So I mean, it's not you know it's not completely 
wacky. I'm very sympathetic with the project because we tend to think as uh, quote-unquote modern people that somehow these ideas were, uh, n are not only dead, but were so stupid in their ince in inception that, that we could never make such mistakes. But th those are, that's the crazy. The 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 yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. It's like the people in the past were dumb. <laughs> and that, and I, I, I try to, to be sympathetic to the people of the past and to try to understand how they thought and why they thought the way they did. I, I find that my responsibility as my as a historian. So. Me too. Hey, that's what I that's what I do too. You know, I do. I mean, and there are lots of very famous cases of people who. Uh, we lionize part of their lives because they said things that are sort of consistent with what we believe, but there are other things they said that we don't like, so we always ignore that. A great one is, a, you know, in the, United, in the context of the United States, what Abraham Lincoln thought about um, uh, African Americans. Uh, he didn't really think that they were um, very smart, uh, to be honest with you, and he said such. Uh, he did free the slaves, and that's good, but, you know, these are things that we tend to, tend to um, forget. Or people that, uh, you know, could be both feminists and eugenicists. These are things that we see can't go together, so we, we forget one side of it and we lionize the other side of it. Uh, and there, you know, there are lots of, lots of instances of this. I always would ask my students, you know, which of the things that you believe today in 100 years will people think are barbaric? And because I'm sure there are such things like zoos. I, I'm, I think I can predict that in 100 years people will look back on us and say, oh, yeah, they really like zoos. Those people were barbarians. <laughs> right? Yeah, I haven't thought about the zoo, but you, you're right. I mean, posterity will judge us the way that we judge our, you know, yeah. our precursors. So, mm -hmm. zoos as barbarity, that, 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 that sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, I think that it's a great project, and I, I wish you uh, really a great good luck on it. Um, I can't wait to read it because you're, you know, I mean, you already know, you're going to find lots of very serious, intelligent monarchists in the 19th century. People that are just as totally as smart as you and me. <laughs> and that's yeah. going to that's going to be a lot of fun for you. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm, I'm already having fun with it. There's a wealth of primary sources, and a lot of these people are also very good writers so, because they know the future is against them, so they have to turn words into their. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, anyway, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we've been talking with Carolina. Armenteros today about her uh, terrific book, The French Idea of History, Joseph de Maistre and His Heirs, uh, 1794 to 1854. And I've really enjoyed talking with you today, uh, Carolina. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Carolina Armenteros about her new book, The French Idea of History, Joseph de Maistre and His Heirs. 1794 to 1854. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.